Thank you, guys. Before I even get started, let me just say thank you. Sorry. Knock people over up here. Hey, uh, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being a part of this. Um, you know, we've been at this for a while, so it just feels appropriate at the end of a year to kind of just express my gratitude to you guys. Thank you for being a part of our church family in whatever capacity that might be in this moment. But I also want to say if you're on a team, if you're volunteering, if you're serving to make this place happen, if it's part of the setup team to create a space for people who are far from God to wander in here and be able to do church with some other people, thank you. You're part of our Kids Works team, and every, every week, uh, you know, we're creating a space out there that's appropriate and exciting for our young ones, and so I just want to say thank you to you guys. If you're on our teams that uh, help with the worship experience, thank you, and, uh, and there are many more. Prayer team, hospitality team, all kinds of different people pull this off, so I just want to say publicly thank you, thank you, thank you. And also, if you're not plugged in yet and you want to be involved, we'd love to have you. Um, well, do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. In the Bibles we have here, that's page 992. And um, it's kind of, you know, a, a season where almost everybody is thinking about resolutions. Almost everybody is thinking about, okay, what have I done this year, and what do I want to do in the year to come? And everyone's kind of reflecting on that and setting some goals and making some adjustments. And I think all of that is, is pretty healthy. And so I want to lean into it as a church. I want to embrace this season as a church. And I want to uh, pray about where we've been together and where we anticipate God might be taking us into the future. And then I want to make some plans uh, accordingly. And so personally, uh, Lord willing, I'll do this in, in the next couple of weeks. I'll take a, a work day as a retreat day, and I'll turn off devices and uh, just bring my Bible and a notebook and, and spend some significant time looking back and looking forward and asking God, uh, what next? And I'm excited about that for myself and for our family and, and for our church family as well. So I encourage you to do that. But as a church, what we'll do on Sunday mornings is we'll gather together and we'll, we'll ask that kind of question. What does God want for us to be and do as a church? And to kind of set some parameters on that discussion, we're going to go to Revelation and we're going to look at some letters that Jesus himself gave to different churches. And they were real churches, but, but he, he basically says, anybody who wants to can look at these letters and listen to them and apply them to their current situation. And so we are going to do that together. We're going to look at these letters and we're going to think about our church and what God wants for us. And so this morning we're going to start in Revelation chapter 2 and we're going to do uh, verses 12 to 17. So I'm going to pray and then we'll get to work. Um, I'll, I'll read it first, pray, and then we'll get to work. Let's, let's go. Revelation 2 starting in verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. 
Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us. We thank you, God, that you have a desire for our church and you've made it abundantly clear. And we pray, God, that we would listen, that we would listen to your voice and that we would be resolved to do whatever it is that you're suggesting we do. And we pray right now for your Holy Spirit's ministry to us, that you would, you would make these words come alive and you would help us to sense and feel them and, and then to respond accordingly. God, we want to be a church that's healthy and that is pleasing to you. So help us, God. Make the, help us to make the adjustments that are necessary. We pray all of this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. 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 So the invitation here, Jesus is speaking to a church in Pergamum, and he's dealing with the issue of truth. And he's able to say to them, there are certain things about your church that are praiseworthy and commendable. Certain things about the way you interact with truth that's healthy and good. Nevertheless, there's some elements I want to correct. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so he's doing the same thing for us. He's inviting us to hear his voice and to recognize elements that might be good about us, but then also to have that courage to embrace things that maybe need to change. So it's, it's an, an invitation to deal with truth. And each of the letters, and there are several of them, they all kind of have a similar pattern. There's an introduction where Jesus introduces himself and some unique aspect of his person that's important for his audience. So he introduces himself. He also addresses the situation of who he's talking to and what they're going through, and all of that is kind of introductory. And then he offers a correction, a word of correction, where he says, this is the thing about you that I want to address, that I want to correct, that I want you to be aware of. And finally, in each of the letters, there's an invitation to do something about it, to hear him, to respond appropriately. So, So let's look at this letter under these three headings. The introduction comes in verses 12 to 13, and here's what we find out. Jesus is speaking to this people, and he's making them aware of who he is and what he's like. So look at verse 12, halfway through it. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. He is the one who has this incredible double-edged sharp sword. Harrison loves swords, and we have an absurd amount of them in my house right now. And they're foam, and they're plastic, and none of them are that threatening, so he'll run out, and he'll be whacking his arch enemy Jeff at small group, and he'll be beating on him, and none of them hurt that bad. Uh, But I have handled swords before that are frightening, and one of them is actually the uh, the machetes that we use at the tree farm to trim trees. It's got a really long handle on it, a really long blade. Every morning before we go out to the fields, uh, they're sharpened. So they're razor sharp. You could shave with them if need be, which would be weird, by the way. Um, but you could shave with them. They're, they're so dangerous. And, and actually, I have marks on my body that reveal to me how dangerous they are. Even though we wear gear and things to try to prevent injuries, it's something that you, when you, you know, high schoolers that work at the tree farm, when you give them this thing at first, they just look at it like, 
no way. Like you're trusting me with this thing. Well, Jesus is saying that he's the one who wields this sharp, double-edged sword that ought to elicit some kind of response. Like, Like, I can't believe that this is what he's like. And that sword, it's kind of weird. I mean, Revelation 2 comes right after Revelation 1. And the situation is the, the author, John, he's telling us about an experience that he had. He was on an island on Patmos, and he was caught up, and he saw this vision, and what he gives to us is the book of Revelation. He's seeing the revelation of God. And if you read it, you notice that words kind of fail him. He's really grasping at trying to say what he's experiencing, and it's hard to do. But when he sees the Lord in Revelation chapter 1, he describes him. And he talks about his garments, and he talks about his hair, and he talks about his eyes blazing like fire and his feet looking a certain way. But he says in Revelation 1.16 that he has this sword, double-edged sword, coming out of his mouth. So it's, you know, it's imagery that's meant to help us understand. He is trying to communicate that Jesus himself speaks the truth. And that truth is like a sword of judgment. And over and over throughout the scriptures, it talks about this reality that the truth of God is like a sword. In Ephesians chapter 6, we're told about this uh, weapon called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's penetrating to the deepest things, to dividing even of Spirit and soul, joint and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The truth of God, how he has spoken to us and how he has recorded that for us in his word is this reality of truth that can even tell what's going on at the deepest levels of who we are. And so Jesus is communicating to this group and he's saying, here's something about me you need to know. But here's something that he acknowledges about the group itself. Verse 12 says, To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write these things. He says in verse 13, he's fully aware of how challenging it is to live in their present location. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, I've been to a handful of places that are, that are a little bit iffy. Um, you know, places in the world where I recognize There's some kind of darkness here, some kind of evil here, some kind of pervasive spirit that I'm not comfortable with. And and even though I've been to places like that, I still can't ever say that's the place where the throne of Satan is. But Jesus says that about Pergamum. He says, this city where you guys live, I'm fully aware of how hard it must be to be faithful there because this is the domain of the enemy. And then he praises them. Nevertheless, you have been faithful. Verse 13, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. You have, I'm aware of where you live. I know how challenging that must be. And I commend you and praise you for your faithfulness to be true to the word, true to the truth, true to my name, even though The society is so hostile to that that they martyred Antipas. Meaning he had convictions about his faith and they probably put some pressure on him to renounce his faith. Just say you don't believe in Jesus. Just say that he's not the only way of salvation and we will spare your life. And he was so 
convinced and convicted of that truth that he, that he was martyred for his faith. And now Jesus is saying, guys, I know where you live and I know how hard it is and I praise you for your commitment to the truth that you have been faithful even though it's been incredibly hard and even though one of your very own has been martyred for it. Now, we need to ask then, could Jesus say that about our church? That we are that committed to the truth, that we have convictions that feel like that, that we understand certain things about who Jesus is and what he's done so that we would not renounce our faith even if society were exerting some pressure on us. Even if culture were saying, if you really believe that, then you don't have a place with us. And the truth is, that's kind of where we're living right now. Many sociologists will talk about the fact that right now in our society, we have moved into greater and greater degrees of pluralism and secularism. And and that means that Christianity is no longer this majority thing for most people. And the pressure then of culture and society is is to try to change what we would believe, to try to accommodate for these realities. So we're living in a, in a point, in a cultural moment right now, where, where, soci- where society itself is saying to us, if you really believe those things, then we not only are against you, we're actually hostile toward you. That if you make exclusive faith claims, then you are going against all of what we think is true because there are other religions and there are other things going on and, and we've moved away from faithfulness to God. And, and so we need to be able to say, we want to be like these Christians who are going to be faithful to God, even if it's very challenging, even if it costs us dearly. We want to be faithful to God, remaining true to his name. And again, is that us? Can we, can we own that? Can we say we have these firm convictions about who Jesus is and what he means to us. So even if our lives were threatened, we, would st- we, would, we wouldn't renounce him. We wouldn't turn away from him because we so dearly love him and believe him to be the truth. Now, I was looking at some statistics this week and I was very discouraged because Lifeway did a survey a few years back where they asked professing Christians about some of these different concepts, about truth. And what they found was many people who call themselves Christians don't really believe the basic elements of the Christian faith. They're not really clear on it. And so they had one question on the survey in which 46% of the respondents were not able to agree with this statement. And this is the statement. Only those who trust in Jesus Christ alone as their Savior can receive the free gift of eternal life. Almost half said, I don't know if that's true or not. Guys, that is a basic elemental reality of the Christian faith. And that got me thinking, how many people come to church and worship with us and they don't even know what salvation really is? That's troubling to me. I actually began to think about what it would be like on the last day if people who came to our church, not knowing this basic reality about our Christian faith, and, and then looking at me and being like, are you kidding me? Why didn't you tell me this? Why didn't you make it incredibly plain? Why didn't you put this on the lowest level possible, on the lowest shelf possible, so that I could easily identify with it? Listen, I want to be the kind of people who know truth and who, who are faithful to it, come what may. 
And I'm just hoping that we could become a church where that is accurate about us. Um, I'm not sure what the answers are. I'm not sure how to make some adjustments so that we don't just do church, but we're very fuzzy on the details of what Christianity is. But I think we need to resolve to figure this thing out together. What is Christianity? How does salvation work? What are the basic elements of the Christian faith? We need to firm these things up and we need to be committed to them. So Jesus is able to praise this church for their faithfulness to him, for their faithfulness to the truth. And then in verses 14 and 15, now he moves to correct, correction. He's going to say, I, I appreciate this about you guys, but here's what we need to identify. Now before I jump right into what the correction is, I just want to step back for a second and point something out. Because it happens in each of the letters. And this is a really, really important skill for us to learn. When Jesus goes to correct somebody, what does he do first? What did he already do at the front end of the letter in the introduction? He praised them. He noticed something about them that was commendable. And then he went on to correcting them. This is very important for us because some Christians don't like to acknowledge goodness in other people and they're just grumpy and they're mean and they love truth, but instead of using it wisely and helping people, they just beat people up. Jesus is very gracious. He says, here's what I appreciate about you guys. Here's what I want to correct though. And both of those have to be held together. Um, a few years back, a friend of mine was doing some training in biblical counseling and I agreed to be the counselee. I agreed to be the test subject. And we started meeting together and I said, hey, here's all this junk. I'm pretty self-aware. Here's all this stuff about me that we could dig into. Stuff that's broken and not working right. And, um, you know, stuff that I'm just aware of that I'm not great at and I should probably be paying better and better attention. So we started meeting and those meetings became less than pleasant. Because not only did I give him a lot of information, he began to find out more. And then, here's the truth about me, I wonder if it's true of you as well, I don't change very easily. And so he would have all kinds of great advice and suggestions and biblical counsel for me, and then I wouldn't heed it, I wouldn't listen to it. And, and so those meetings kind of, they weren't nice. And so we just stopped doing them for a while. And later on, we were able to look back on it and reflect on what was going on, and he gave what, what continues to be very, very important language for me in ministry. Because he began to reflect on that entire process, and he said, here's what I think was going on. I was on a great, I, I was on a sin hunt in your life, and I kept finding more and more of it. And he said, what I realized throughout this process is I shouldn't be on a sin hunt, I should be on a grace hunt. I should be looking at your life trying to, before I ever offer words of correction, I need to be able to find things in you that are commendable and praiseworthy. And that has become a very, very important concept for me in ministry, and I want to suggest that you learn how to do that well. Yes, there are things that we need to correct in one another, but before we even do that, we need to love people enough to be on the lookout for the goodness of God in them. Um, we, we, we need to care enough for a person. One of my professors put it like this. He said, Christians love to go all the way back to Genesis 3 when dealing with somebody. He said, we got to go further back than that. When you're dealing with a person, your goal shouldn't be to convince them of their sin and their need for God. That is a part of it. But go even further back and go to Genesis 1 and 2 and find in them the goodness of God. 
the fact that they were made in his image. We need to learn how to find the fingerprints of God in the people that we're dealing with, no matter how smudged they might be. We need to look at people and in love, just like Jesus did here, be able to say, here's what I appreciate about you. Nevertheless, here's something that we need to address. That's caring enough to confront. That's how that works, and we need to hold these things together. That's what Jesus does here and in each of the letters. So look at his correction in verse 14. I praise you for your love for the truth and your uh, commitment to it, your faithfulness to it. Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. He's saying within this church, even though they love truth and they're committed to it and willing to die for it, nevertheless, there's an element of them, there's a part of their experience where certain teachers are teaching something that's false in the line of Balaam. Balaam was a dude from the Old Testament. He was a, more or less, he was kind of a prophet. He was a prophet for hire. He was like a mercenary prophet. And one of the kings, Balak, he went to Balaam and he said, I will pay you handsomely if you pronounce curses on the Israelites. If you will look at them and you declare over them with that word of prophecy that you have, if you will say that they are cursed by God. And Balaam says, um, well, I'm happy to do that. I'd love to get paid. Uh, here's the problem. I'm constrained. I can only say what God allows for me to say, but I'll try. And so three different times, Balaam looks at the people of God and he's trying to get his paycheck. So he's looking at them and he wants to curse them. And if you guys remember one time he's riding a donkey and the donkey uh, stops because of an angel in the street and the, he's beating on the donkey and he's like, come on, dude, I want to get paid. And the donkey starts talking to him. Okay. So Balaam is persistent that he wants to do this thing, but he looks at the people and instead of cursing them, he blesses them three different times. So now Balak is really frustrated because instead of doing what he, what he was going to pay him to do, he did the exact opposite. And that's kind of where that story ends, but you pick it up just a, a few chapters later. And we find out that Balaam, because he's stubborn, uh, figured out another way around this. In Numbers 31, verse 16, this is what it says. Balaam, Balaam told Balak and his crew to entice the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord through sexual immorality and through certain foods that they would eat, through this thing here. Now, here's what Jesus is saying. Within your church, there are some who tolerate this false teaching. And the essence of it is very clear. It is teaching that permits people to sin. It's teaching that entices people to, be, to do things that are unethical. It's teaching that allows people or gives them some, some kind of uh, encouragement that they could do that and still be okay. And he's saying, I appreciate your love for the truth and your passion for it. Nevertheless, here's something that needs to be corrected. You are okay with false teaching. The false teaching of Balaam and also the false teaching of the Nicolaitans. Look at verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nic Nicolaitans. So he says, here's the problem with your church, and we need to face it head on. Your church is okay with things that are not true. And that reality, that teaching is doing harm. It's doing harm, and so Jesus is against it. 
He is against false teaching in all of its forms. And so I wonder if he were to look at us, if he would have to say something very similar. You guys have a passion for the truth, but here's a problem that I identify in you. You are, a, you are okay with false teaching, which is a weird thing to say because then I started to think about it. How often do you hear about false teaching? How often do you hear about this concept that I think is all over the scriptures? If you read the Bible, I'd encourage you to, to do this. You read the Bible Skim through the New Testament and see how many times false teaching comes up. It's a, in my opinion, it's a major theme. Not only in the New Testament, it's also in the Old Testament as well. In Jeremiah 23 and multiple places in Ezekiel where there are people who are speaking on God's behalf, presumably, but they are not actually saying what God is saying. And they're leading people away from truth. And so this is a stark warning to us. Are we okay with false teaching? Now, I wonder, since we don't talk about it very much, if we're simply not aware of what it might even be. What is false teaching? If anyone claims the name of Christ and claims to speak on his behalf, are they always saying something true now? Did false teaching just, you know, vanish into thin air after the New Testament was finished? I don't think so. I think it's very much alive and well today. And I think then we need to be the kind of church that is aware that there are other things that are being communicated that aren't true. And we need to be the kind of church that is committed to the truth. Now, we're supposed to be, a church is supposed to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's 1 Timothy 3.15. But here's what I'm trying to say to you. We need to know then what truth is and isn't. We need to become the kind of people who are aware of what truth is, and then we need to be aware that there is such a thing as false teaching so that we could recognize it and say, that's not, that's not us. That's not what we believe. We listen to the word of truth, and we want to follow closely to it. So Jesus is able to say, I praise you for these certain elements of your commitment to the, to the truth, but on other elements, you are negligent, and that needs to change. And I wonder if that, you feel that at all this morning, that Jesus himself might be saying, you need to, you need to begin to discern what truth really is. Um, so he gives us an invitation in verses 16 and 17. The invitation is to repent. Verse 16, repent therefore, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He's saying, Here's what I want you to do. I want you to change. I want you to turn away from that false reality and turn toward God. I want you to repent of your negligence on this area. Otherwise, Jesus is saying, I will come to you soon and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So you have to at least agree that Jesus is not ambivalent here. We talk about him being meek and mild. You know, he's my homeboy. We wear shirts like that. But Jesus is saying, I care so deeply about truth that if there aren't some adjustments that are made here, I will come soon and I will fight with the sword of my mouth. I will render my judgment on these sorts of teachings. So we need to be aware then that this is some serious business, that there is false teaching, and we should be aware of that, and we should be committed to trying to pursue truth as best as we possibly can. So the invitation is to repent. The invitation is also to hear 
and apply these realities. Look at verse 17. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He's saying, listen, if you're, if you're hearing this, there's an open invitation for you. Listen to the voice of the Spirit of Christ. Listen to what Christ is saying to his church. Become a person of truth. Become a person who listens to what God says and, and, and you're committed to that. You're passionate about it. Become a person who's familiar with truth. How else are we supposed to know what untruth is if we're not familiar with the genuine article? Become a Bible person. Become a person who reads this thing with some kind of pattern and regularity. One of the things that we're going to do as a church in the coming weeks, we're going to do a series going through the big picture of the Bible. And to do that, we're actually going to use a kid's Bible. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible, and we're going to encourage you, if you want to, pick it up. We'll sell them here starting next week, five bucks a piece, and you can grab a children's Bible, and we'll tell you, read these four different stories this week, then come to church, and we'll, we'll, we'll have a message that complements that truth, that highlights one of those stories or something during that period. And then talk about it with other people, with your family, if you're in a small group, talk about what you're reading there. But you, if you're reading the truth, then, you're, then you should be hearing from God what truth really is. But that's, that's how it works. And we need to become so familiar with this that if something doesn't fit with it, that we would be aware of it. John Stott, he's one of my favorite, famous, uh, one of my favorite preachers. Uh, he passed away not too long ago. But he wrote on these letters. And he put it like this. And he was talking about how to overcome this false reality in the world. And he suggests here that the best course of action that we have is to become Bible people. And he puts it like this, so I want to read it to you. He said, falsehood will not be suppressed by the gruesome methods of the Inquisition or by the burning of heretics at the stake or by restrictive legislation. Different ways that the church throughout the ages has dealt with false teaching. And he says, this never really been successful to do harm to other people. He says instead, ideas will not be overcome by force. Only truth can defeat error. The false ideologies of the world can be overthrown only by the superior ideology of Christ himself. We have no weapon other than this sword. We must use it fearlessly. Become a person of the truth. Hear the word of Christ and what the Spirit is saying to the churches and respond and apply this to your own life. Become a person who loves the Bible. Finally, anticipate the promises coming true. Look at verse 17. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. He's saying there, there are promises for you. If you're faithful to the truth, good things are coming your way. You might have to make sacrifices in the immediate future because of societal pressures. You might even lose your life. But in the end, in the long run, you will win. To those who are victorious, I will give you a couple different, very significant items. Manna. Manna was the thing that God fed the people of God with um, when they were in the desert wilderness. They'd wake up in the morning and there'd be bread on the ground. And it was God's doing and he provided for them. And he says, I know that you're tempted to eat this meat sacrificed to idols. 
and the pressures are on you to do that and to excuse yourself and to make that okay. He's saying, look, if you will abstain from sinning in that way, I will give you a meal that is far more satisfying. Then he says, I will also give you a, a white stone. And that white stone back then, it could be something that a judge would use to render somebody not guilty. It could be a verdict that he would give, an acquittal, and say, this person is set free. Um, But it could also be something that they used as a ticket. Kind of like when we go to an event, we have a ticket. And they would give out these white stones. And here's what Jesus is saying then. He's saying, if you will be faithful to truth, and, and if you will do that with resolve, and if you're victorious, here's what you have coming you will be admitted into the greatest feast ever known. The wedding supper of the lamb himself. The party that will never end. You will receive food that will satisfy. You will receive admittance into this incredible reality because of your commitment to the truth. Here's what it's saying. All of these promises you can anticipate and they will come true in Jesus Christ. Be people who are committed to the truth. Jesus is inviting us not only to have a concern for truth, but to have that practical experience of it. We should be people who care deeply about what God has said and then allow for that to shape and mold our lives. So I'm going to pray right now. I'm going to invite you to stand if you would, and I'll pray over you, and the band will come. But let's allow for the Spirit to continue to work in our hearts right now. Lord, help us to become a community of faith that knows truth, that believes truth, that is resolved to be committed to it, come what may, and that applies it to our hearts and lives. God, we want to be faithful to you. We we want to be pleasing to you. Thank you for all of the promises that you give us in Jesus Christ. We pray, God, that we would become a community of faith that cherishes that, and loves that, and lives accordingly. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.